You may be familiar with the story from uh, Greek mythology about the, the Trojan horse. After a, a ten-year siege of the Greeks upon the Roman city of Troy, uh, the Greeks decided to attempt a, a bit of uh, deception. They constructed a large wooden horse, and they hid a select group of soldiers uh, inside it, led by Odysseus, a name you might recognize. The Greeks uh, left the horse outside the city gate and then got in their ships and sailed away. And so it appeared to the Trojans that the Greeks had sort of admitted defeat and offered this wooden horse as kind of a, a token and, and left. And so uh, the Trojans uh, opened their city gates and pulled the horse into their city and it's sort of a, a victory trophy, right? Look, we finally uh, declared victory and, uh, and we have um, prevailed over the Greeks. But that night, while they slept, the soldiers who were hidden inside the horse got out of the horse. They emerged and they opened the city gates to welcome back in the Greek armies who had, under the cover of night, sailed back in. And so now the Greek army, led by Odysseus, uh, utterly destroyed the city of Troy while the warriors slept because they simply were not ready. You see, the Trojans thought the war was over and they were woefully unprepared for the schemes of Odysseus and his army. At least that's how the story goes. Our passage today in Ephesians chapter 6 sets out for us the importance of awareness and of preparation in the spiritual battle that rages among us. Indeed, in which we are all, as the people of God, called to fight. So if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 6 in your, your Bibles, uh, we'll be looking at this passage today. In fact, my hope had been, my plan had been to, to get through verses 10 all the way through 20 and do the whole armor of God passage today. Uh, and you might not be terribly surprised to learn that uh, I decided I've got to slow this down just a little bit um, so as not to have you drinking from a fire hose and, or trying to cram in so much information that none of it makes much sense. Um, and so we're going to break this into, uh, I think, two parts. Uh, so today we're really going to focus on verses 10 through 13, which just sort of set the scene of the spiritual war that is raging and that we are uh, involved in. And so it, it'll be a call to sort of readiness, awareness, preparation, the importance of fighting with the right kinds of weapons uh, in this warfare that we're engaged in. And then next week, we'll look at the actual elements of the, the armor of God that, uh, that is, are provided to us, both the, the defensive elements and the offensive elements of that um, armor and, and weaponry that he's equipped us with. We're going to read all 11 verses, so verses 10 up through 20. Uh, we're going to read all of that for now so we have the context of it, but the, we're zooming in today on the first three verses, uh, excuse me, the first four verses of the passage. So reading together, um, or excuse me, I will read uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And just remember that we've come here to sort of Paul's final exhortation uh, to the churches that are to receive uh, this letter. And so he's spoken to them about the riches they have in Jesus Christ through the gospel in chapters 1 through 3. And then he's been unfolding for them what that gospel life looks like among the people of God in chapters 4 through 
sits or in, in the community of the church and in household uh, order and codes, what, what Christian homes look like. And now he returns to sort of exhorting the entire church, right? So not just subsets of, of people within the church, but this is for all the church. Um, this is the war that we are all engaged in. And so it's a final call to be prepared and to fight the battles with um, the weapons that God has provided for us. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless this, his word, and grant us faith to receive it today. Here's the big idea for these first four verses, verses 10 through 13. The big idea is this. Those united to Christ have every necessary tool to fight against the kingdom of Satan. Those united to Christ have every necessary tool to fight against the kingdom of Satan. You are in a war. You need to know it. And you need to be aware that because you've been united to Jesus Christ by faith, you have at your disposal every resource you need to fight this battle and to succeed against the enemy and indeed to arrive safely home at God's golden shore. So, four things we are exhorted to know in these few verses. Number one, know your power. That's the very first thing he tells us as he sets the stage, sets the scene for the spiritual war that is unfolding and, and that is raging all around us. The first thing he tells us to do is to remember that we have limitless resources of divine power at our disposal. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Look at those three different words. Be strong in the strength of his might. And those in the Greek are actually three different Greek words. I don't think there's anything magical about that. I think Paul is just sort of like 
reaching for all of the, the resources of language that he can muster to sort of illustrate to us, you have incredible resources of spiritual strength available to you in Christ. In Christ. The point, of course, is, is that the spiritual strength you will need in order to successfully engage the enemy is not your own. It's not your strength. He doesn't say, be strong. Just, you know, buck up and be strong people. He says, be strong in the strength of his might. It's the Lord's strength that you need and that indeed he has provided for us. Not your strength, but the Lord's. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul had celebrated the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he spoke again of that power uh, according to the working of his great might. That back in chapter 1, verse 19, we have the, the sort of resurrection power of Jesus Christ alive and at work within us. He is working powerfully in our lives, in our souls, in our spirits, and we have the, the resources of his strength available to us. In chapter 3, verse 20, this is what we've read each week uh, as a sort of a benediction at the end of our services, this prayer. Now, to him who is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, right? It's, it's the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that is currently, actively at work in you that enables him to do in our lives and through our lives, all of these abundant and wonderful things. It's not our power. It's not our strength. It's the Lord's strength through us. Paul reminds us here in, his, in the conclusion to his letter, yet again, that the Christian's source of grace and strength for spiritual life is his union with Jesus Christ. This doctrine has come up over and over in the book of Ephesians as Paul has celebrated this fact and reminded us, you are in Christ. And to those who are in Christ, there are limitless resources of grace and strength available. Christ has united us to himself in such a way that what is his is ours. And what is true of him has become true of us. So because he has riches of strength and power, we are united to him and therefore we have access to that same power at work within us. Commentator Benjamin Merkel says this, Amid intense spiritual warfare, the power to fight and stand firm comes through a genuine relationship with the resurrected and ascended Christ. It's because Christ has defeated the powers of evil and been raised and ascended to heaven in the heavenly places presiding over all the universe and all the spiritual powers that be, it's because of that and because we are now connected to him by our faith in him that we have all that is his. And so his resources to fight against the evil one are ours. We lean not on our own strength. We lean on his strength. The main way... And we'll talk more about this next week, but the main way that we appropriate that strength is through prayer. It's through simply asking him, Lord, give me the strength for this battle. Whatever phase of the battle or aspect of the battle is unfolding in front of you at any given time, 
We pray, we plead, we call upon the Lord, meet me here with strength for this battle, for this struggle. And His strength is available to us. So the first thing you got to do in preparation for this battle is to know your power. And it's not the power that's in you, right? Sorry, Mariah Carey. The hero does not lie within yourself if you look deep enough. The hero is Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord, and his resources are yours through faith. Know your power. The second thing you got to do, he tells us in verse 11, is to know your armor. Know your tools, your resources, your weapons. What has God provided to you in order to fight this battle? Know your armor. And so he introduces the idea here in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. All right? uh, the, the, armor of, the armor of God means armor that comes from God. Right? It's God's armor, right? as it were. He's giving you this armor. So that's what armor of God means. It's the armor that God provides. So the emphasis, again, is on the fact that these preparations for our spiritual battle are not innate to us. It's not like we have the resources and tools and strength available just because we're so great. We have these resources and tools available because they're a gift from the Lord through our union with Jesus. Because we're united to Christ, God has gifted to his people every tool and resource needed to withstand the attacks of the enemy. Now, the notion of God in armor, I think this is really interesting. This is not a totally isolated idea in Ephesians 6. Obviously, this is the most famous passage about the armor of God. It's the probably most fully uh, realized, fully imagined metaphor uh, of the armor of God. But this is not the first place that this idea comes up. In fact, it's an Old Testament image that Paul just sort of uh, borrows and, and appropriates for his purposes here. Back in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, he spoke of, of the servant who would come and, and bringing the kingdom. Of course, we know, looking where we are standing, looking back toward the incarnation of the Son of God, we know that he's referring to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And he speaks of righteousness that shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness shall be the belt of his loins, so even there, looking forward to the coming of Messiah, there's the notion of these characteristics, these virtues that are sort of like his, his war armor, right? The belt of his waist, the belt of his loins are righteousness and faithfulness. Again, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 59, verse 17, it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So the Lord himself is said to, to wear these elements of, uh, of armor, the, these, these virtues and these characteristics that are strapped on as though they are the implements of war. And so God himself goes into war equipped with this armor. There's other places in the Old Testament where notions like this come up. Lindsay was actually just telling me this morning about something she read in the book of Jeremiah where God calls Jeremiah to, to put on the clothes to go to work, like put on the, the clothing of, uh, of work and go basically fight against, in that instance, his own people, like the kings of Judah who have abandoned God. He's supposed to go to work and call them to repentance, but he tells them to, to put on the, the clothing of work, right? And so it's the same kind of idea. There's a, there's a 
a kind of thing that we are to metaphorically put on that prepares us for the work that's to be done, for the battle that we're to enter. And so Paul employs this metaphor uh, of, of God in armor and tweaks it a bit to, to, to image a Christian in God's armor. Um, and he's done that in a few other places. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul said, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. They're a little bit different. Like the breastplate is not the same. He doesn't give the same virtue to the breastplate in 1 Thessalonians as he does in Ephesians. Again, I think he sort of reimagines this and we get a fuller uh, picture of it here in Ephesians 6. In Romans 13, 12, he says, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so, again, the, the righteousness of Christ, the life of Christ within us is to, to be for us an armor that we put on. Of course, that's a metaphor. We don't have literal, I don't have a closet with pieces of armor that I actually have to put on to my body, right? It's, it's resources in Christ that we have available that we are to tap into, that we're supposed to take to ourselves. And so this passage, of course, in Ephesians 6 is the most fully imagined treatment that Paul provides and, and we'll break down the armor again. We're going to break down the armor and its defensive elements and its offensive elements next week. So we won't get into the specifics of it today, unfortunately. Um, but he begins this passage here by telling us, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to withstand. And so we'll come to know the, the pieces of that armor and how those things function uh, next week. But know your power, the resources of spiritual strength that are available to you in Christ, Know your armor. Be ready to put on what God has given you by his grace. Third, know your enemy. You cannot go into battle without a good awareness of who you're fighting. If your army gathers and trains and soldiers up and has all the right equipment on and they go into a battle but they don't know who they're fighting, they're going to lose. You cannot fight a battle without knowing your enemy. You need to know who they are. You need to know how they operate. You need to know where they're likely to be located. You need to have a strategy, right? All of these, the, these things, these military metaphors apply here when we're thinking of the spiritual battle that we are called to fight. Know your enemy. Again, in verse 11, as he's just told us, put on the whole armor of God, he then says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so he names the chief enemy that we fight against right here. The devil. The word devil means slanderer or accuser. That's what it means. Um, he's identified elsewhere as Satan, which means adversary. Like his very nature, his very character is to oppose God and his people. This is what he does. This is who he is. He opposes God's plans and purposes. And therefore, because he knows that God is at work through Jesus Christ to build the church, to create and redeem a people for himself who will be to his glory for all eternity, he is at work against the church. Satan is actively working against God's people. This is why Paul speaks of his schemes. He's not just blindly flailing about. He has plans. He has strategies. And we need to understand what those strategies might 
be. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, uh, he, he, he is exhorting us that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is a spiritual enemy that knows what he's doing, who has a plan, who has a strategy. We need to know his strategy so that we won't be outwitted by him. In the verses that, that Kelsey read for us just a few minutes ago, we heard that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is intent upon the destruction of God's people. And he knows he can't win the day. He knows at the end of it all, he's finished. But he's going to take down as many people as he can on the way. If he can sideline Christians, if he can get them so distracted with their own sin and temptation and difficulties, if he can trick them into believing false things about God and the gospel, he will fight in every way he knows how in order to veer us off the path. Note the spiritual nature of our warfare. Paul tells us here after he's named the devil, he says, for we, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Like, this is not a physical battle. This is not like we need to get physically strong and go out and find some enemies to fight. That sounds goofy, but I think sometimes Christians actually fight the wrong enemies. We get distracted by earthly things like politics and whatever else, and we go, oh, that's the enemy. It's our political opponents. Those are the ones we need to fight against. That's not who our battle is against. And in fact, that may be a tactic that the devil would employ to keep us distracted from the real battle is to fight the wrong battles. Let's get them so worked up about secondary and even tertiary battles that they don't have time or energy to actually focus on the spiritual battles that are going on all the time. They don't even know how sidetracked they are from the mission of Christ and his church. It is not against flesh and blood. And then he names for us four sort of distinctions of spiritual forces. Look at, look at these lines here. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't think, some have tried to sort of see in these, these four phrases like an actual sort of a ranking of like demonic armies, you know, like a hierarchy. Okay, so you've got rulers who are maybe like Satan's first in command, and then there's, you know, uh, the, the authorities, and so maybe they're like a third, maybe they're like the, the colonel, you know, in the army. I don't think we can be that specific. And in fact, when, when the New Testament writers speak of Satan and his forces in other places, it's not, it doesn't always use the same language, right? So... I don't think we should parse this too closely and, and try to figure out, okay, what are the, what are the rankings of, of demonic powers? It's, it's purely speculative. But nevertheless, what Paul is driving us toward is the reality that Satan has armies, right? He has demonic powers and, and, and minions, if you will, who are about and doing the work of the devil in opposing God and his people and in their various roles and various um, natures, they are intent on destroying the work of Christ in the people of God. And he tells us, I think the key phrase here is in the heavenly 
places, right? So he knows, we know when he says we're battling as rulers and authorities and powers, we're not talking about earthly powers. We're not talking about, you know, the, 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 the other team in, in politics or whatever it is, right? We're, we're talking about spiritual forces because he says that they are in the heavenly places, which is a phrase that has come up a few times in the book of Ephesians. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, this whole book began, the celebration of the grace of God to Christians began by him saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he go, went on to say in verse 20 that uh, he, uh, the, the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so then when he says that we have been seated with Christ, that's what he means. He means we have in the spiritual world, if you will, the sort of spiritual realm, we have been seated with Christ, united with Christ. And so as Christ is seated in the heavenlies, we are seated there with him. Chapter 2, verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're not literally, physically seated with Christ, but in the spiritual realm, that's the reality. That is our status, right? That is our identity as in Christ. We are seated with him over the powers in the spiritual world. He told us in chapter 3, verse 10, that what God is doing in the building of this church, the, the uniting of disparate peoples from different ethnic and religious backgrounds into this one people of God in the church, is making his wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's chapter 3, verse 10. In the church... The manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who is that? Those are the spiritual powers. And when he says something kind of generic like that, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, I think he could also be including the forces of good. In other words, God's angels and his armies who, who serve him and serve his people. So he's making known both to his angels and to Satan and his uh, followers that God is triumphing over him through the, the wisdom that's displayed in the birthing of the church, the creation of, uh, of the church. And so it's this spiritual realm that's invisible to us, but it's going on all the time. This war is raging around us all the time, and we are right in it. And if you don't know it, you're going to lose Right? I mean, that's the, the implication here is if we're not paying attention, if we don't know the power that we have, if we don't know the armor that God's provided for us, and we don't really know our enemy and how he might be at work and how we can come against him, we're going to be unprepared. And just like the Trojans were sieged by the Greeks in that, uh, who burst out of that horse, we're going to be uh, caught unawares, unprepared, and not be ready to fight back against the devil. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4, Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We need to know the spiritual nature of our battle so that we go into the war with the right tools, with the right defense and the right offense. You'd never go out onto a battlefield wielding a fish, right? You're not going to come out victorious in that battle waving your fish around. You would never do that. You would make sure that you have the right armor and the right weapons that are going to equip you to fight the enemy that is before you. We must not enter a spiritual war with weapons tailored for earthly pursuits. I've already mentioned politics, which I think can be such a a major distraction for God's people. Um, Philosophy. We may think, okay, we need to get really geared up to fight against philosophies and, and, and have our minds prepared for that. Maybe even things like wealth and status. Maybe if I just have a big enough platform, I can influence people. And so that's what I need to, to prepare for. Maybe we value education and like eloquence to the point that like if I just am smart enough, learned enough, and articulate enough, then I'll be able to fight against the, the forces of evil in our world. Helpful as those things may be, I'm not saying that politics is all bad or that philosophy is all bad or that wealth is all bad or that education is bad. Helpful as these things may be, they are not the tools that the Lord has given his church for the waging of spiritual warfare. There's an old book uh, by Thomas Brooks called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Advances. I think is what it's called. I may have misspoken the title, but it's something close to that. And uh, I found this really helpful. He said this, You have not to do with a weak, but with a mighty enemy. And therefore you had need to look to it that your weapons are mighty, which they cannot be unless they are spiritual. Carnal weapons have no power in them towards the making of a conquest upon Satan. It was not David's sling nor stone that gave him the honor and advantage of setting his feet upon Goliath, but his faith in the name of the Lord Almighty. You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a shield, but I have come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That was the the real armor and the real weapon that David carried into that battle. It was not, look at this great sling or my skill at throwing rocks, right? Look at how amazingly sharp and perfect this, this stone is. The, the point is he went into that battle against an enemy who had defied God in the name of and in faith in the God of Israel. You've defied this God, I come to you in his name. That's why David had victory that day. Not because David was so sharp but because God's name was honored and because David exercised faith in God himself to to, to provide the victory. And in the same way, we've got to enter spiritual battles with spiritual tools, spiritual weapons. Know your enemy. The fourth thing that I think we're exhorted to do here in these verses is to know your victory. Know your victory. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul knows that if we will take upon ourselves what God has provided as the armor that we are to take into battle and the weapons that we're to take into battle, 
we will be able to withstand the devil. We will be able to stand firm when all is said and done. I think that that phrase, having done all to stand firm, I think that means like when it's all said and done, you will find that you have stood firm. If you fight with the spiritual weapons that God has provided for you, know your victory. Listen, the armor that God supplies is sufficient for the battle. He has not left you on your own in this contest. And the tools that he's provided you are powerful enough to thwart the devil's schemes and keep us safe within God's care. Consider these, uh, these other things from, uh, from the beginning of the Bible and the very end of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, of course, you know the scene well in the Garden of Eden where the serpent comes to Eve and Adam and begins to speak to them about what God had commanded and sows seeds of, of doubt to them. After Adam and Eve have fallen into sin, disobeyed God's command and and followed the the voice of the serpent, God comes looking for them and he finds them and uh, and he speaks curses. Yes, upon Adam and upon Eve and upon the creation, but the first curse he offers is to the serpent. And indeed, the most substantial uh, and, and devastating curse is upon the serpent because it includes his ultimate destruction. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I'm no medical expert, but I'm pretty sure a head wound is a bit more deadly than a heel wound. The seed of the woman, namely the Messiah, Jesus, would crush the head of the serpent. So Jesus, in his conquest over sin and death, in his death and resurrection, it's as though he's got his foot on the neck of the serpent. And the serpent is thrashing about, and he's biting, and he's spitting venom, but he's defeated. His victory, or the the victory of Christ is already secured. If you fast forward to the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read this. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, the one who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That is a scene of final victory and defeat and destruction of Satan and his demons. And it's already a settled reality that that day will come because Christ has conquered the evil one in his life and death and resurrection. So his destruction is imminent. His defeat is sure. And Jesus himself assured uh, his disciples, excuse me, uh, this is the apostle John in 1 John 4, 4. He says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the devil, right? The one who is in the world, the one who's spoken of as having power over this present darkness, we read about just a few verses ago. This is, this is Satan, the enemy. And we are reminded that the one who is in us, that is Jesus Christ, because we're united to him, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. If Jesus has already won the victory, declared victory for himself over the serpent, and we know that a certain day of destruction of the enemy is coming, And if we are in Christ and he is in us, 
and he is greater than the enemy, then we have every confidence. Not only that ultimately, one day, when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, will things be made right and the devil will be destroyed and we will be victorious with him. But even today, even in this in-between place that we live where there's tension and there's struggle and the war is going on, we can find spiritual victory over the enemy. You are able to withstand him. That's the good news of the gospel when it comes to this spiritual battle. You know, people like to uh, to to depict um, the sort of Bible story as this like cosmic battle between good and evil as though it's not certain which side is eventually going to prevail, right? Sometimes it looks like God is winning and sometimes it looks like Satan is winning and boy, we're not sure what's going to happen. God has really got to fight with all his might to, to overcome the devil. And that's nice and dramatic, but that's not the story that the Bible tells us. The story the Bible tells us is from day one in the garden when the fall had just happened, God said, by the way, I'm going to crush your head. And then I'm going to send my son in the incarnation at Christmas and he's going to live a sinless life and he's going to die on the cross. And you might think you've won, but guess what? He's going to rise from the dead and he is going to defeat you. And by the way, there's a day coming at the end of time when you will be thrown down with all of your demons into the lake of fire and you will be no more. That's the settled reality. This is not a struggle as though we hope that God comes out victorious. We know that in Jesus Christ, he has conquered and he will destroy the enemy. And because we're in Christ, we have the same victory afforded to us. Now, you won't likely see Satan or his demons in the material world. Now, crazy things happen sometimes, but I don't think you're likely to see a demon walking around, right? And it's not always going to be obvious to you. Oh, wow, I'm under demonic attack right now, right? He doesn't often make himself obvious. In fact, the Bible tells us that he often masquerades as an angel of light. We may be enticed toward him because he, he makes his ways appealing to us. He appeals to something within us, something dark and sinful, usually, that leads us toward him. So he, he won't be, it won't be obvious always to know how the, that the devil is at work. Satan's attacks will come in, in different, more subversive forms. Here's a few that I think we can uh, prepare ourselves for just based on how we see him work throughout the Bible. The first one is deception. Satan works to deceive the people of God. That's what he did at the very first thing. In Genesis chapter 3, when he came to Eve and Adam in the garden, he started spouting uh, lies. He started, uh, or or deception. Not outright lies at first. It was just sowing seeds of doubt. Did God really say that? Is that what God meant by that? Do you think maybe God's uh, withholding something good from you? He really just wants to keep the honor for himself. And so he's trying to keep you out of something. Is that? And so Adam and Eve start to think, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it would be good. And so they're deceived. This is the way that Satan has worked from the very beginning. He deceives Christians even today. He's at work to deceive Christians through false doctrines, misunderstandings about who Jesus is, about what he really came to do, about what it really means to be saved, about the need to repent of sin. Satan is at work to deceive us. And if if he can get us to believe things that soften 
the, the call to repentance or that minimize the person and work of Jesus Christ in some way, he's winning. In that moment, in that battle, he's, he's winning by deceiving people into believing false things. So we need to be aware that he will attempt to deceive us. And so it won't always feel like, I'm under attack, somebody help me. Woo, that was close. We'll often feel like we're doing the right thing. We might feel like, I'm just trying to gain a better understanding. I think I actually get this a little bit better now. As we listen to the voice of the, the word of God and, and the teaching of other Christians and the church faithfully throughout the generations, we might be able to see, you know what, I think I'm, I'm actually veering. I think I'm off, uh, off track here. He works to deceive us. He, he works th- through just plain lies and, and sowing doubt. Jesus called him the father of lies, right? He is a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. He'll, he'll, he'll try to convince us to believe lies about God. You know, God, God, maybe God doesn't really love me. You know, I, I know God is kind and merciful, but man, I just, I just messed up so bad. There's just no way that God, that God could still forgive me for my sin, right? So we start to believe lies about God, lies about ourselves, Lies about the harmlessness of sin. You know, you deserve this. No one has to know. It's not going to hurt anybody. You ever fallen prey to thoughts like that that led you into sinful decisions? You could be pretty certain that, that, that Satan is at work there. Through temptation. We saw him tempting the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 after the, the baptism of the Lord. He was driven by the Holy Spirit. I'm always amazed by that line. Driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil came to him after 40 days of fasting. Has anybody fasted for 40 days? I've never done that. I've done it a little bit at a time. 40 days is kind of unbelievable to me to even fathom after 40 days of fasting what I might feel like. And the devil comes to Jesus after that 40-day period of fasting where he knows he's going to be weakened. We know, he knows he's going to be more susceptible to temptation. And he starts saying things like this. Why don't you turn those stones into bread, right? And, and feed yourself on these stones. You don't need to endure all of this trial and, and hardship. You know, God's just putting you out here to, to, to starve. You could just feed yourself by turning these stones into bread. And this is what he does all the time to us even now. He tempts us. Might be thoughts in our mind. Might be a word that we hear from somebody else that sort of takes root. But he, he tempts us toward abandoning God or toward even just making little concessions, just little compromises. Nah, this, won't, this won't be that big a deal. Temptation. Uh, a final one that I'll mention today, which is not to say this is all that he uses, but a final one that I would mention is sin, our own sinful impulses. So sometimes we like to say, you know, the devil made me do it, like when we do something terrible. Um, and that, we can't really use that as an excuse because we have our own indwelling sin and, and our own sinful nature that leads us into sin, right? When we are enticed and led away, we, we fall into sin. Nevertheless, the devil will use what's already there in our fallen hearts. Those desires that are forbidden, those things that we, that we want or think we deserve that God has said no to, whatever it may be. If we're inclined toward something that, that is inherently sinful, Satan will camp out there, right? Satan will try to exploit those weaknesses and lead you further and further down the pathway of sin. Uh, Paul, back in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27, spoke of 
of, of the danger of unresolved anger, right? He said, be angry and do not sin. Uh, do, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He said, lest you give the devil a foothold. That's an interesting thought, right? That unresolved, sort of unchecked anger in our hearts is a foothold for the devil. In other words, he's like, oh, I can work with that, right? Ooh, I got, I got an angry man here. I can, I can work with that. I, I can tweak that, squeeze that, press that, encourage that, like whisper thoughts that are going to make that anger just boil up and, 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 and rise to the surface, right? So our own sinful impulses and, and instincts and desires are things that Satan will exploit for, uh, for our detriment, for our harm. And so we need to be aware. We can't necessarily say, well, the reason that I lashed out in anger is because Satan made me do that thing, right? I am still responsible for my choices, for my sins. But we need to know that the devil will work with the material we're giving him, right? So if we give him sinful desires and impulses and sort of unchecked uh, character things in our own lives, he's going to work with that. And he's going to make the worst of that as he possibly can. There are all kinds of other ways, right? Uh, that, that he might attack us. But these are a few that I think are common and that we need to be uh, well aware of. And just as Jesus himself taught us to pray, when the disciples said, teach us how to pray, and he said, he gave us the, the, the sort of model prayer, right? Uh, one of the things he said was, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Really might actually be the evil one in view there. We, we need the strength of the Lord to, to fight, help us to fight against the devil. In the heat of these spiritual struggles, we must look to Jesus Christ and hold fast to him. Remember, in the words of Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18, Christ has been, it says, made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It is to make satisfaction, to remove the barrier of sin. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted by the devil and to endure it. Often we give up before the battle uh, reaches its, its hottest point. Right? We give in to temptation. Jesus withstood it. And he did that for us. He did that on our behalf. Because we didn't have it in us to do it. We would succumb to temptation. We would stumble and fall in our sin. And so Jesus withstood temptation and remained sinless for our sake. So that when he went to the cross, the sacrifice that he offered would be unblemished and spotless. A spotless lamb. So we need to remember these two things. He is with you in your temptation. Because he's been, he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That means when you are in the throes of temptation, call on Jesus. Ask him to help. He has strength to give. And he's with you in those moments of temptation. Call to him. Pray for his strength. So we need to remember he's with us in our temptation. And number two, Remember this, he has made atonement for you. He has made propitiation. He has removed the barrier of sin from your relationship with God. He has united you to himself in such a way that what is his is yours. That his status as a son of God 
is your status as an adopted son or daughter of God. Look to him in faith and you can withstand anything the devil throws your way. Let's pray.